Well, good morning. How are you guys doing? Uh, from what I understand, there's like some freshly brought in coffee, which tastes amazing. You should get yourself a cup if you have not gotten yourself one. Uh, but uh, if, uh, if you want to listen to the word, Evan, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> it was too easy. My name is Marco. I'm the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse Community Church. Thank you guys so much for joining us this morning. If you're new, just a couple of things before we dive into our time. Uh, on your chair, there should be some connect cards. If you're new, you want to learn more about us, we'd love to hang out with you. Fill one out, drop it in the offering basket that uh, gets passed later on during service, or uh, drop it off in the back connect desk. In addition to that, uh, man, we're going to be covering a lot of Bible today. And so if you don't have a Bible and you're new or you just don't have one, uh, man, on your chair, somewhere in your rows, but particularly in the back connect desk, there are some Bibles. That is our gift to you. Uh, man, that's just a small, easy way of saying uh, thank you uh, for hanging out with us. Uh, man, we love the Bible. We believe that it is God's inerrant word. And therefore, man, we preach directly from Scripture. We love diving into books of the Bible. Uh, and that's where we come to today. Uh, so if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. Um, and when I say that uh, you should have your Bibles open, I, I mean it because we got a lot to, to work through today. There's going to be a lot of cross-references. You're also going to notice that up on the screen, normally there are some added notes uh, they won't be up there today because, uh, man, my hope, prayer, and admonishment to you is that you have your Bibles open more than looking up at the screen. Not that I don't appreciate you looking up here. But nevertheless, man, I want you guys saturated in God's Word. I want you guys learning God's Word. I want to hear the pages flipping because that's one of my favorite sounds in the whole wide world. Um, and finally, that noise that's in the background, it's one of the AC units. We're just going to pretend like it's always been there. Um, other than that, I think that's, that's all I have. This is what I want to do. Uh, I'm going to read uh, our passage for our time today. It is a tough topic, uh, but man, it does have and it does involve the beauty and the grace of God, um, as does all parts of Scripture. And so, uh, but nevertheless, the topic itself can be kind of hard. Um, and so we're going to walk through it again, verse by verse. This is Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. I'll read, I'll pray, and then we will be in our time together. <clears throat> so the Apostle Paul writes, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychidus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All those who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith and grace be with you all. Let's pray. God, as we begin to, as we begin to dive in and unfold your word, may your Holy Spirit be present among us. 
God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in us. Not just as you reveal yourself to us through your word, but as, the, uh, but as you, man, reveal sin and convict us in light of your word. God, I pray that this would bring you much glory and honor because all Scripture is breathed out by you, and so our aim is not to make much or to please men, but ultimately to please you. God, I ask that you would just set me aside and that it would be you speaking through me. God, we love you and we thank you for this time. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. J.C. Ryle once said that church discipline, which is what we're talking about today, that church discipline, when exercised wisely, promotes the church's health and well-being. Essentially, what Ryle is getting to is that even though it's difficult, church discipline is motivated by love and a pursuit of holiness. And to ignore church discipline would be to suggest that we do not love one another and that we tolerate unrepentant sin. Further, in John 15, Jesus is talking to the disciples and he admonishes them by telling them that he is the vine and they are the branches and that the role of a branch or, or the outcome of a branch is ultimately going to be that they are either going to be plucked and thrown into the fire or they are going to be pruned, that they are going to be disciplined, that they are going to be cut back for the purpose of growing in maturity, for the purpose of health, for the purpose of growing in holiness. Church discipline is an active pursuit, and plea for repentance. I think many times when we begin to talk about church discipline and even some of the horror stories that people have heard regarding church discipline, whether you've experienced it before or have just heard about it before, sometimes we can turn away from it because many times it's not exercised wisely. Many times it is not done correctly. Many times it is not done lovingly and graciously one of the things that we will unpack today is that church discipline begins and ends with the gospel. Always. Always and always. And so in light of that, what I want you to just soak up is that church discipline is an active pursuit and plea for repentance. And just like Titus was instructed to lead and to equip and to address the church in Crete on church discipline, we too, through God, excuse me, we too, by God's grace, will walk through his instruction through the Apostle Paul on church discipline. As we begin to look at verse 9, a brief review of our time from last week. Last week, uh, we talked about these, uh, I gave this, this horrible analogy of, of the burger, right? That there's like good work, and then there's the grace of God, and then there are good works, right? Everybody's like, that's what it is. That's what you remember. But it was still horrible. Um, Apart from that, last week we talked and dived into really two things. That number one, that the Christian isn't better, the Christian is repentant. The Christian isn't better, but the Christian is repentant. And that good works are a response to the work of God in the believer. 
And so by way of contrast, Paul now begins to talk about and address false teaching again. He did this in chapter 1. We had an entire sermon regarding false teaching. Paul now comes back to false teaching in this section. Last week, as we walked through verses 1-8, through his big crescendo, Paul's big idea of our time last week is that the gospel is the only thing capable of bringing renewal and restoration. And as he transitions into verse 9, essentially what he teaches is that false teachers' desire is to distort the gospel with foolish and ungodly motivations. So it was a very intentional transition. Man, this is, God tells us to be ready for good work. This is how you have been saved and it has been by the grace of God. Therefore, prepare yourself for good work because false teachers will distort the gospel. False teachers will be motivated by foolish and ungodly motivations. That's why he transitions so hard. And so when we look at verse 9, he begins by saying in verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies. But avoid foolish controversies. The word avoid, I want you to underline it. I want you to circle it. I want you to highlight it if you have it on your phone because it's incredibly important. Number one, it's a verb, which means that there's action that comes behind it. Number two, it is written in the imperative tense. In other words, what he is saying when he uses the word avoid, he is not suggesting to ignore or to be passive. What he is saying when he uses the word avoid is that we will have to draw a clear line of distinction in light of theological separation. When it comes to false teachers and false teaching, we will need to clearly make a clear line of distinction. How we avoid it is by making a clear line of distinction. So it is not passive. It is not something that you ignore. It is not something that you just pretend isn't there and we kind of disagree or agree to disagree. But it is a clear line of distinction of where you stand versus where others may stand. And then he goes on to say foolish controversies. In other words, that these controversies that false teachers are talking about, that are teaching, that are preaching, they lack sustenance, they lack wisdom, and they do not promote godliness. Think about it. If the goal of a false teacher is to distort the message of the gospel, what they're going to present you with is something that is ungodly, and that it doesn't promote faith. It doesn't promote godliness. It doesn't promote faithfulness. It is empty. It lacks wisdom. All right? And so he says, use, uh, excuse me, avoid foolish controversies, empty sayings, uh, things that lack wisdom, things that are distorting, things that are deceiving. And he continues, he says, foolish controversies, foolish genealogies. In other words, they're going to come at you with questions about God's faithfulness or teachings about God's faithfulness throughout all of history for his people and through the work of Jesus on the cross. They're going to distort those messages. They're going to try to deceive you in light of 
of what is the truth. And he says foolish dissensions, that their motivation, their ambition is to divide. They know what they are doing. And we're going to see a little bit more of that in verse 10. But for now, when he's talking about avoiding foolish controversies, avoiding foolish genealogies, avoiding foolish dissensions, he is saying that these people know what they are doing, that they are aiming to divide. And finally, foolish quarrels about the law, that their desire, when he uses the word quarrels, that their desire is to argue not for the purpose of edification, not for the purpose of debate, not for the purpose of growing and maturity, not for the purpose of speaking into one another's lives, but for the purpose of conquering. But for the purpose of conquering, that is their goal. That is their goal. When it comes to foolish genealogies, foolish controversies, foolish quarrels, because they lack wisdom, because they lack sustenance, or substance, excuse me, because they lack substance and because they lack wisdom, the only thing that they ultimately do is that they divide and separate God and his people. That's what they do. And so what's important for me and you What's important is that we are to be grounded, saturated, immersed, soaked in, whatever word you'd love to use, we are to be grounded in the Word of God. That we are to be grounded in what God says about His work and His faithfulness. That we are to memorize Scripture. Memorization is a big deal, right? In Ephesians 6, he gives us our one of two offensive weapons. And one of them is the sword of the Spirit. He says, which is the Word of God? Right? We are to memorize Scripture. Otherwise, how are you going to fight? We are to memorize Scripture so that we can come out with it quickly. So we can not just rebuke and reprove, but so that we can also push back and fight back and protect the gospel. You see, ultimately, our role in immersing ourselves in Scripture isn't just for our sanctification. It's also for the protection and sanctity of the gospel. That's why we do it, so that we protect the gospel. We must be grounded in Scripture so that we can discern and actively avoid foolish controversies. And this means calling it out, not simply disagreeing. Here's what I mean by that. Paul throughout his letters, and we're going to visit a few in just a moment, Paul throughout his letters, when it came to false teachers, when it came to false teaching, he was very deliberate about calling those people out. It was not just an agree to disagree. It wasn't just you go your way, I go my way. I can kind of see your point. It was calling them out by name in his letters so that the pastors and churches would know who they are. He was very deliberate about it. I'll show you. This is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Paul writes, these lights. Paul writes, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me among Philagius uh, and Hermogenes. That these were guys that were alongside of him and they bailed on him for something else, for another gain. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17, he says, And their talk will spread like gangrene. Not only does he call them out, he uses some really strong words and uh, says some pretty 
whatever. He says some strong words. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hermanius and Philitus. He goes on to say in that section, you can read it in 2 Timothy, he goes on to say that not only were their talk spread like gangrene, but he goes on to talk about what they were teaching, the false teaching that they were spreading. And so he calls them out by name. In Titus chapter 1, we looked at this several weeks ago, verse 10, he doesn't call people out by name here, but he is specific about what they are about. In Titus chapter 1, verse 10, he says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So these teachers, right, what these people are doing is that they are upsetting whole families and they are teaching for the purpose of shameful gain. He calls them out by name. And there are some on TV pastors or people who are out in the public that must be called out by name to avoid their teaching that is make a clear line of distinction so that we won't be fooled by foolish controversies, dissensions, quarrels. And so what that means for you and me is that we are to be grounded in Scripture. We are to be grounded in Scripture. You see, when we avoid and expose false teachers, when we do it wisely, it isn't because we're trying to be superior, but because we're trying to protect the Gospel, but because we're also trying to plea with them for repentance. Church discipline begins and ends always with the Gospel. And so Paul gives us in verse 9 an idea of what's going on. And then in verse 10, he tells Titus how to address it. In verse 10, he goes on and says, As for a person who stirs up division, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Because we are carefully looking at words, we're going to pause at that word division. Same thing, you're taking notes, you've got your Bibles open, underline it and highlight it. That's an important word, right? The reason it's an important word is because the way in which it is written suggests that, one, they are already creating division. Two, they are coming from within the church. And this is something Peter warns us of. This is 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. He says, But false prophets are among those, or excuse me, are among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Peter goes on to say that false teachers are going to come from within the church. Elsewhere in Acts, one of the last encouragements and exhortation that Paul gives to the elders, he says, be on guard because wolves will come out from among you. We must protect the gospel by being immersed in the gospel. Because division... And the stirring up of division 
will happen. And so when he writes, stirs up division, it implies that it, a couple of things. One, it's within the church. Two, it's already causing tension. And then finally, number three, it implies that the people or person who is stirring up division is already holding fast to their beliefs. That they are already distant themselves. And now what they're trying to do is, like cancer, they're trying to spread it in from among the church. They're trying to bring in others. Paul goes on to say, warn them once, warn them twice. Same thing, underline that word warning. What Paul is saying is that we are to confront those individuals. That yes, as Christians, as believers, we have been called to the ministry of reconciliation and the ministry of confrontation. (laughs) I thought that was funny. Anyway. That we are to confront them. Elsewhere in chapter 1, Paul gives us the reason for why we should confront false teachers. Number one, we confront them with the gospel and we rebuke them so that they would turn to sound faith. In other words, you're not going up to someone just to shut them down. You're going up to someone to point them to sound faith to point them to the person and work of Jesus. When he uses the word warning, it's not some scholastic and academic way of debating with an individual. It is you going before the individual and pleading with them to repent, begging them to repent, pointing them to the person and work of Jesus and telling them to repent. That is what you're doing. If church discipline begins and ends with the gospel, then it is not about you. It is about the glory of Christ. It is about the grace of God. It is about the person and work of Jesus. And so when we confront someone who is going astray, we confront them and we plea and we beg them to repent so that they would see the error of their way, so that they would turn away from their sin, and so that they would place their trust in Christ, bringing restoration to their soul. That's why you warn them. The warning isn't something done on Facebook, and it's not some really cool, clever hashtag. It is you meeting with them. And it's hard, and it's awkward, and it's messy. That's why it's not about you, but the gospel. But the gospel. And we'll get into some practical stuff, but what I would interject in this, in this section is a reminder that the reason we are to be immersed in the Word of God, the reason we are to be grounded in the fact that Christ is Lord is so that we would point others to him, not so that you can come out to someone because you want to sound smart or because you want to be right. You ruin the witness for the gospel when you do that. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. So Paul goes on to say to warn them once, warn them twice, and then he says the hard part, have nothing more to do with them. In other words, if they are unrepentant, if they do not repent, have nothing more to do with them. The purpose of church discipline is always 
restoration and renewal to God and his church. That is the purpose of church discipline. And so when Paul says, have nothing more to do with them, in other words, if they are unrepentant, have nothing more to do with them, church discipline is exercised with a protective posture for the gospel and the church and with grief in our hearts. Church discipline, when exercised wisely, is done with a protective posture for the gospel and the church and with grief in our hearts. So you can't tell me it's this academic debate because it might be one of your friends. And I've been on that side. I've been on that side where it's your friend sitting across the table who is choosing to remain unrepentant. I've been on that side where it's, where it's family. It's messy, it's murky, it's muddy, it's painful, but it is essential because the goal is to glorify God, to protect the gospel, to protect the church. But in doing so, it is this plea, this pursuit for repentance. For repentance. And so he says, have nothing more to do with them. In 2 Thessalonians 3.4, Paul goes on to say, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may, excuse me, that he may be ashamed. Have nothing more to do with them doesn't only imply that church discipline begins, but it also means that we excommunicate ourselves from that individual. In 2 Thessalonians, he says to do that so that they would be ashamed. Now, I'd like to clarify a little bit on that. That doesn't mean that it, our goal is to create humiliation for an individual. That's not, that's not what he means. That's not what it implies in this section. But what shame does do, because there's a difference between bitter and angry, or being bitter and being angry, and then being ashamed. When you're ashamed, you realize the depth You recognize the depth of your sin. You recognize what your sin has done, how it has placed distance between you and God, how it has affected you and others. The the bitterness of your heart is now being revealed to you. Man, sometimes shame is a way for God to allow us to see the depth of our depravity and sin. And that's hard. And I'm not saying it in a way like, you should just sit in that but you should sit in that because what should come next is repentance. You see, in repentance, we recognize, we recognize that God's grace is literally our only hope. That's it. God's grace is our only hope. And then once 
Repentance begins to unfold, Lord willing. Restoration is next to both God and the church. John Calvin said it this way, that excommunication does not tend to uh, drive men from the Lord's flock, but rather bring them back when wandering and going astray. He is saying that in those moments when they are released, the goal is that they would be met with the depravity and the, the, the result of their sin that they would recognize their need for a Savior, that they would recognize that their only hope is grace, that they would recognize that the only thing that can begin to fix this is the gospel of Jesus. That is it. That's what we're looking for so that as repentance takes place, their posture is made uh, obvious before God and then restoration takes over. Now, I've just, I have it that way on my notes, and I just said it that way. It's not always as clean as that. It's like, uh, it's like a football play. I was talking to Nathaniel about this. I don't know anything about football. But I did take this one class where this former coach put the circles and the X's, and he's like talking about the play, and he's like, man, this is how the play works. And I remember sitting there, and I was like, that's so easy. And he's like, but when you get on the field, it doesn't look anything like this. All right? That's, that's that whole spiel. On paper, and in light of what we see in not just Titus, but even Second Thessalonians, and even parts of, of, of uh, First Corinthians, man, on paper, you're like, got it. That's what we're supposed to do. It's not going to be clean. Not going to be clean. Paul says, warn them once, warn them twice, have nothing more to do with them. They are warped, they're sinful, they're self-condemned. In other words, what he is saying in, in those words is, it's not that they are becoming warped, that perverted in their thinking, sinful in terms of knowing what they are doing. It's not that they are becoming that, it's that they are already that. They are already in those states. They are already warped. They are already sinful. And when he writes self-condemned, they are already pronouncing themselves guilty because of their actions. That's what he means in that, in that section. And church discipline is messy and it's painful, but essential and necessary. Therefore, we must have a firm understanding of God's word, of his grace, and ultimately what he says about discipline. Moving on. Paul then goes on in verse 12. We'll go through, through 14. He says, Man, when I send Artemis and, and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to send Zenos and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Let our people uh, learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and to not be unfruitful. In the midst of church discipline, one of the things that we must just come to understand is, uh, man, it's not to be met with alone. What I love about this section, and we can extract much more than what we're talking about, but what I love about this particular section is that he talks about two men that it sounds like they are there with him, Zenos and Apollos. Right? It sounds like they are there with him. And we don't know much about Zenos, uh, but Apollos, we actually, we actually know a great deal. Uh, he's featured in Acts uh, chapter 18 and 19 and several sections in 1 Corinthians. He is described as an eloquent man and someone who is competent in the scriptures. So this guy sounds like a beast. And uh, it suggests that he was there with Titus. And so it's a good thing that he has a lawyer and he has a guy who is competent in the scriptures because 
man, now he has people pouring into him in light of what he is to do next. All right? That's a good thing. Man, church discipline isn't to be met alone. It's a good thing to have others with you. And then he says about Artemis and Tychidus, he says, send them, or excuse me, they're coming. They're coming to relieve you. I kind of skipped a little bit, but he says, they're coming to relieve you. Man, what that tells us just about this letter and about this section is that as Paul's writing it, he's sending two of his guys to go relieve Timothy, or excuse me, Titus, so that Titus can go back and hang out with Paul and maybe debrief. Tell him, hey, this is what's going on. This is what I experienced in Crete. These are the conditions of the churches. I got your letter. This is what's going on. We know that after this meeting, at some point, Titus did go elsewhere. And that's in 1 Timothy 4, if you want to look that up. He did go elsewhere. All of that to say, there are people coming in to relieve Titus, and it suggests that there are people there with Titus, which it tells us that, man, church discipline is not to be met alone. That's a good thing. That is a very, very good thing. And so Paul goes on to say, to tell our people to learn to devote themselves to good works. Man, this this talk about good works in Titus, this will be the sixth time Paul has talked about it. It's kind of a big deal, right? And so when he says learn to devote, he is saying uh, learn by doing. Not sit in a class, right? Not an equipping class that's on Sundays at 12. He's not saying that. He's telling them, tell them to learn by doing. Tell them to learn by doing, which further communicates a lifestyle of discipleship. And in addition to that, particularly in instances or cases of church discipline, man, the church is involved in many areas of that. And so meeting needs is a big deal in the, mess, in the, in, in the, in the wake of church discipline. Oftentimes, many good works can mean, man, praying for what's going on, praying for the individual, praying for the individuals involved. That is meeting a giant need. Another thing that can happen, particularly in the case of restoration of an individual, now that means that the church comes alongside that individual. Right? That's hard. That's hard. Because I think the first thing that's going to spike in people are emotions. Our emotions regarding what happened or what's going on. But sometimes meeting the need in the span of restoration means coming alongside that individual. And meeting their needs. Meeting their burdens now become our burdens. And we'll look at that. Look at, uh, this is Galatians chapter 6 verses 1 through 2. This is what Paul says. Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Here's the big part. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So that spikes at the emotion. What he is saying, and we'll read verse 2, but what he is saying in that section is that when you receive someone who is repentant and who is being restored, that you're coming alongside of them and welcoming them in. That doesn't mean you don't have conversations. That doesn't mean that other things aren't a part of that. We're not talking about the practical right now. We're just talking about what Paul says. That you bring them in with gentleness. And he says, but keep watching yourself lest you too be tempted. In other words, 
Keep watch on yourself. Just because this is going on, now, because this is going on, you should see the gospel at work in what's going on. Some people will want to distance themselves from what's going on. And when they distance themselves from what's going on for whatever self-righteous reason, they now find themselves in a place that lacks repentance. That's what that means. And then he goes on in verse 2. He says, Bear one another's burden and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burden. That means their burden now becomes our burden as we walk this muddy, murky journey of discipline and restoration. That's what it means. Now, for those of you that are uber uh, practical, let's get a little bit practical. So we've walked through, we still got one more verse, but we've walked through everything that Paul is uh, addressing with Timothy or Titus uh, in the sense of false teachers, what to do, how to handle them. I want to get a little bit practical and really walk through three things. And I want to walk through, man, so what does church discipline ultimately do? What does it accomplish? Uh, The next thing I want to walk through is why we do church discipline. Some of you, man, are very curious. Some of you are like, I've never heard any of this. Some of you have had some experience. And then the last one is, well, how? How do we begin to approach, approach this, right? And so starting with that first one, why do we do church discipline? Or, or excuse me, why, what does church discipline do? I'm all over the place. What does church discipline do? It does a couple of things. And I would just, man, beg you to listen on this. You don't have to write them unless you want to. But I would just beg you to listen on this. The first one is that it brings glory to God. It brings glory to God because we are trusting in his word and in his gospel and everything that is being done is this giant active plea in pursuit of repentance. All right? Second thing that it does is that it loves the sinner. Remember, when he says, warn them once or twice, that word warning, he's saying, plea with them. Plea with them to repent. Beg them to repent. Church discipline is nothing more than a plea for repentance. Number three, restoration. Lord willing that if an individual or individuals repent of their sin, there is restoration that takes place. They're they're restored to God. They are restored to the church. Number four, it guards the purity of the church. It guards the purity of the church. In other words, What that means or what that suggests is that in the midst or in the wake of church discipline, when it is done correctly and wisely, what that means is that we're going to do church discipline because we don't tolerate unrepentant sin. And so it guards the purity of the church. I think that was four. Number five is that it protects the fellowship, that we prevent division, we prevent strife. And then finally, number six, is that it brings witness to the world. Remember, church discipline is a pursuit of repentance. That's, that's what it is. It is a pursuit with open arms of repentance. Man, what is at the core the message of the gospel? It is God pursuing us, pleading, saying, repent! Repent of your sin. Trust me. Come to me. Repent. That is the message of the gospel. And church discipline reflects that if done wisely. That's what church discipline does. Why do we do church discipline? 
There's a, another pastor, his name is Danny Akin. I, I stole his stuff because he says it so well. And so this is what he says. So why we do church discipline? Number one, we do church discipline because overlooking sin is not gracious, but dangerous. Sometimes we confuse overlooking sin. We're just trying to be sentimental. Sometimes we're just like, well, they kind of think that way. That's okay. We'll, we'll just stay on our side. That's not gracious. That's dangerous. And because it's dangerous, what we see in, in Titus is that these individuals became warped, sinful, and self-condemned. And number two, uh, that confronting sin is not optional, but essential. Some, man, some of you are, are like introverts. Some of you are really shy. And uh, sometimes confronting someone on their sin isn't exactly your wheelhouse. You still got to do it. You still got to do it because of reason number one. It's not gracious if you overlook it. It's dangerous. And, and here's what I would say. I get it. Man, I am uber insecure, and I'm an introvert, and I'm shy, and whatever. Like, I love my corner office. It's the greatest. And I still have to have some of those hard conversations. And yeah, man, I got to pray, and I got to think through it, and I got to seek counsel. That's a good thing. Still got to do it. And, but here's the other thing. It's not just me, that if you're a believer, and especially if you're in community with one another, this is going to happen. And so your role in that is to confront it. It's not optional. It's essential. Number three, he says uh, that dealing with sin is not judgmental, but it is, uh, it's remedial. Usually, someone who is unrepentant, someone who doesn't want to repent, someone who doesn't want to change, will say, like, why are you judging me? Like, I'm not judging you if I'm bringing the gospel to you. It is remedial. Number four, correcting sin is not carnal, but spiritual. In the sense of, if you read Ephesians chapter 6, Paul goes on to say that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but spiritual forces in the heavenly places. That it is, and church discipline does involve warfare, spiritual warfare. It will involve spiritual warfare. Man, so how do we combat that? Ephesians 6, sword of the Spirit and prayer. Sword of the Spirit and prayer. So that's the, the what and the why. Now let's look at the how. All right, let's look at the how. So how do we begin to confront it? Or how do we begin to address it? Man, if someone's in my life or in my community or my church, how do we begin? I'll give you two things. There's a lot of subpoints, but I'll give you two things. The first one is check your heart. Christian, check your heart. Please check your heart. What do I mean by checking your heart? Man, identify the sin that's going on. Man, sometimes Christians can become, not that it's a bad thing, but sometimes can become so emotional that when they get or when they approach an individual, they got nothing specific, just a lot of screaming and a lot of emotions that are going on. Well, you remember when you did that, and you know, I hate it when you do that. That's that's not specific, man. Be specific. What is it that you're going to address? What is it that you're going to address? And then once you figure out what you're going to address, take the log out of your eye, Christian. Take the log out of your eye as if the gospel only applies to you. Take the log out of your eye. And then finally, number three, pray. 
This is all under check your heart. Identify what the sin is, then take the log out of your eye, and then pray. Because here's the thing. Some of you will cloak yourselves with self-righteousness, or excuse me, with, with uh, uh, yeah, some of you will cloak yourself with righteousness, but really you're being self-righteous and vengeful. That's your motivation. And you'll mask it with, man, churchanese or Christianese. You'll mask it with prayer groups. You'll mask it with a couple of verses. But really, your motivation is not grace to better understand, to listen. Your motivation is self-righteousness and vengeance. And that's not yours. And you need to discard your self-righteousness. Christian. That's number one. Check your heart. Number two, remember gospel realities. Right? Remember gospel reality. What, what does that mean? Number one, Christ is Redeemer. Man, what did Jesus come to do? Man, he came into human history, lived a sinless life, died a sinner's death, and now gives, offers the grace that we cannot earn. That by his blood, we are redeemed. That we are made new. That we are changed. Christ redeems. The second thing is that the gospel is for everyone and anyone. To begin to think that the gospel doesn't apply to someone tells me that you're so spiritually immature and that you lack an understanding of grace. The gospel applies to everyone. And finally, finally, all under gospel realities, this whole thing, me, us approaching someone or whatever it is, it's about, well, it's not about you. Even if you've been the one sinned against, it's not about you, but the gospel. Check your heart and remember some kingdom realities. Verse 15. Paul goes on. He closes it up. All who are with me send greetings to you. Man, grace, uh, greet those who love us in the faith and grace be with you all. Here's what I would say. Remember grace. In light of his closing, remember grace. It is one thing to not like church discipline. It's another to ignore its purpose. It's another to ignore its purpose. Discipline isn't because you're not loved. It's in fact because you are loved and you are being pursued. Discipline forces us to look at the promises of God. And the church doesn't exercise discipline out of some sense of self-righteousness, but because the grace, but because of the grace we have received through Christ. That's why we practice church discipline. Thomas Oden said, only those who take sin seriously take forgiveness seriously. Jesus did both. Here's what I would conclude with, church. Christian, here's my admonishment. Here's my encouragement to you. He who began a work in you will complete it. Therefore, lean onto his grace and his understanding, not your own. Saturate yourself in Scripture. Let it reflect in your conduct. 
discard your self-righteousness and embrace the grace of God's righteousness. And if you don't know Jesus, and if you're here and you're like, man, church discipline, that's something I don't want to talk about. Let me just say that if you don't know Jesus, I urge you to come to him today. Discard your self-righteousness. The perfect church does not exist. And discipline is really just God preaching repentance. Receive His saving grace. Turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus. We must always, church, always remember grace. Let's pray. God, as we close up our time, not just this morning, but our time in Titus, God, thank you so much uh, for this opportunity to preach through Titus. God, I, I pray that, man, by your Holy Spirit, we will have been significantly impacted by your word, by the truth of your word, and by the restoration of your word. God, as, as we move forward, through Paul, you talk a lot about good works, but you always narrow it down to works being a response to your work in us. God, I pray that we would never forget that. I pray that that would be etched into our hearts. I pray that that would be, man, something that we constantly preach to ourselves. And so that when we do good deeds, it is because we are, our aim is to please you and not man because ultimately you examine our hearts. God, church discipline is messy and it's, it's muddy and it's not everyone's favorite topic. And I get that, but it's necessary. It's necessary to be discipled through it. It's necessary to be taught uh, church discipline. It's necessary to look at what your word says regarding church discipline. So God, would you please, uh, through your Holy Spirit, work in us. Work in us so that we would wrestle with this and actually ask questions and, and work through what this means. Not so that we would ignore it and then kind of address it if it ever comes our way, but I pray that we would actually work through this and evaluate the condition of our hearts. God, forgive us of our self-righteousness. Forgive us of the self-righteousness we carry among ourselves because we go to church on a Sunday or because we're a part of some Bible study or because we don't do this or that. God, forgive us of our self-righteousness and our legalistic hearts. And may you penetrate the grace and beauty of your gospel in our hearts, in our minds, renewing our thinking. For the glory of your name, and for our good. God, we love you and we thank you for this time as we move forward into tithes and offerings. God, this is still a continuation of us worshiping you. And so, God, may it be shown to us as we relinquish the control we think we have, as we worship you through the transformation that you have done in us, the, the work that you've done in us by the power of your Holy Spirit. This is, this is a, a part of a result of that. So God, we thank you. Allow us to be good stewards of this. Allow us uh, to be faithful stewards with these finances for the glory of your name, for the expansion of your kingdom, and for the spreading of your gospel. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.